It's from the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In those days, when the number of disciples were increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's an irony. Uh, Pastor Howard and Kelly are not here today because they're doing a wedding for a white couple in Pinehurst, North Carolina. If you all know anything about Pinehurst, North Carolina, it's a little bit of the uh, kind of uh, the center of the kind of southern traditional blue blood kind of atmosphere. Uh, Howard calls me yesterday and goes, I'm glad I bought a golf shirt. I'm not sure these are my people completely. I had to figure this whole thing out. The people looking around me with my dreads all the way back and, you know, and I'm preaching on white man's burden and he's in Pinehurst. Strange, strange irony. Um, in those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. I mean, Jesus just went back to heaven. And things are jacked up. We live in a world that's jacked up too. Y'all, uh, uh, white, white folks uh, kind of messed up uh, Western civilization as well as did really good things in Western civilization. American history is tied to, to white folks really kind of jacking up some things. What do we do? Grecian Jews, Hebraic Jews, white folks, black folks, Hispanic folks, everybody folks, melting pot, mixed salad, however you look at it, right? Rudyard Kipling tries to help. Take up the white man's burden. Send forth best ye breed. Go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives need to wait in heavy harness on fluttered folk and wild your new caught sullen peoples half devil and half child take up your white man's burden the savage wars of peace fill full the mouth of famine and bid the sickness cease and when your goal is nearest the end for others sought watch sloth and heathen folly bring all your hopes to not. 
take up the white man's burden and reap this old reward. The blame of those you better. The hate of those you guard. The cry of hosts you humor. Ah, slowly toward the light. Why brought he us from bondage, our loved Egyptian knight? You know that I have no uh, great uh, love for this poem, I hope. (laughs) It's a complicated poem. Critics have wondered for a long time since the day one it came out. Uh, It had this splash of, oh my gosh, this is an amazing poem of irony. He knows better. He's born in Bombay, India. He knows better. It's Rudyard Coupling, man. He wrote Jungle Book. No, he wrote Jungle Book. It's jacked up. You know, no one knows what to do. Hundreds of years later, uh, Douglas Kerr, the great biographer, says he's still an author who can inspire passionate disagreement. And his place in literary and culture history is far from settled. But as the age of European empire recedes, he is recognized as an incomparable, if controversial, interpreter of how empire was experienced. And that makes him a force to be reckoned with. Talking about Rudyard Kipling. What he's experiencing is also a force to be reckoned with, this Grecian and Hebraic Jew problem, the history of Western civilization, the history of the U.S., the history of the church. But in one sense, the poem doesn't matter. I don't care what you think about Rudyard Kipling. The phrase and the idea, the poem itself, are not the most important thing. They have become a historical and cultural phenomenon. They now are something on their own, and that no one, like I didn't even know White Man's Burden was a, was a Kipling poem at first. But I knew all about the sociology of, of White Man's Burden. It has its own life and narrative, its own history and societal reality. And it is this, that you of privilege have the responsibility, the burden, to take care of those lesser peoples. Inferior, either socioeconomically, socially, whatever it be. And it has a long history a real history. This is not just a perceived reality. It has a real history. My dad was born in Hawaii before it was a state. During the time when he was born, though he wasn't, he was too young to have this happen to him, Hawaiian children were beaten for using Hawaiian, their native tongue. Same thing happened, uh, uh, during, for, for the Gaelic, uh, for Gaelic during the British Empire. Do you know what a Welsh knot is? In schools, the Welsh children would have to wear, a, the, uh, one of them would start with a necklace. As soon as they spoke in Welsh and not the king's or queen's English at the time, they had to take it off. Uh, uh, they have to give it off and give it to somebody else who ever had uh, spoken the queen's English or not who had spoken Welsh. And by the end of the day, whoever had the Welsh knot around their neck got lashed. Have you ever heard of Pears Soap? Pear's Soap was the first copyrighted um, brand name ever, a product of the empire. There's these awful images that exist about how uh, these help clean. And you can imagine what you can do with images of cleanliness when it is being sent to India and to Africa and other things like that. And they have uh, uh, 
uh, again, 200 years of copyright, the first one in London. This soap is, is actually supposed to be really good soap. But the image and the way that they created this whole world was a, uh, was a, uh, the, the, the branding of it was about, um, making things clean. A time in which, um, when, when your white skin was supposed to be almost translucent, that was better. And that's what you were going for. I looked on the website now and it said 200 years of rich history. I was like, no kidding. The first Walmart, really, you know, the first ability to imperialize through economics was amazing. There are Miss Pears competitions that existed for about 60 years where they get curly, blonde-haired little girls to uh, to pose and do the soap thing. And it was a, a, a famous thing to be a Miss Pear girl, kind of like a, a, I don't know, Miss Teen U.S. I don't know what it would be a comparative to. But it was a big deal. Translucent skin. I want to introduce a term to you. Pastor Howard, a friend of Pastor Howard, mine, a, a, a scholar, African American scholar, um, a scholar who's African American and does African American history. Uh, he comes up with two terms. He calls them dominant culture and subdominant culture. I find these very, very helpful terms. Uh, so we don't just do black and white today, even though I'll be leaning on that. Uh, dominant and subdominant cultures, because he says you can be both in a dominant and subdominant culture at the same time, depending on where you are. Uh, you can be uh, you can be in a dominant culture in the U.S. or in the South, uh, but you come talking to country up in New York, you've just lost your dominant culture status, right? Got it? So you can be around, depending on which lunch table you're at, you may be at a dominant or a subdominant culture, right? All right. And just to get the Anglos off the hook a little bit, I'm not an Anglo, by the way, just in case you're wondering. I'm actually a Mediterranean uh, and, a, and a Hawaiian, believe it or not. I'm a Hawaiian. Um, and... Uh, uh, just to get just the Anglos off the hook, this is, this is true for the Russification of, of uh, the Poles, the Belarusians, the Ukrainians, right? You know that uh, as amazing as the architecture and how the heck they made the pyramids, uh, the Egyptians were probably not the ones who, you know, stacked the stones. You know, they were slaves for 400 years that were there, at least uh, uh, Jews at least and others. You know the Mujahideen and the Taliban has torn, t- torn down Afghanistan's old cultural uh, relics, including the Bahamian, Bu- the Bahamian Buddha and the eagle in the Baklan. You know that, uh, that uh, there is a wall around China, right? That was to keep people in and out, right? right? Did you know Pax Romana was very Romana and not much Pax, right? Right? Okay. So we get all, I see Mediterraneans get it too. We all can be at the different lunch table and be a dominant or subdominant culture at different times. But I want to be honest with you and I want you to see the white man's burden. Do you have that? Did it work? Can you see this? You may not be able to. Um, this is actually Pear's Soap. It's an advertisement and you see the, it's Admiral Sanders because he's on a boat. Um, and, uh, and it says here, the first towards step towards lightening the white man's burden is through teaching the virtues of cleanliness. It is a potent factor in bar- I mean, this is hard to read. It is a potent factor in brightening the dark corners of the earth as civilization advances, while amongst the cultural of all nations, it holds the highest place. It's the ide- ideal toilet soap. <laughs> As much as everyone has been a part of this, you can get that off the screen. That'd be great. 
As much as all of this is a part of our lives and, and, and we all have that different tables, there is a reality of a white man's burden that has existed in our history, and we need to know it. Look, y'all, I grew up in the military. It's not that big of a deal. I didn't have much of that white man's burden. I grew up in all that kind of world, crossing cultures. I was born in Germany, all this other stuff. But when I got to a wonderful Christian, Protestant, uh, uh, academically elite institution right up the road, yes, guys, right up the road, I learned what my white man's burden was all about. I read all the stuff. I have, I was, I, the first book I read at Davidson College was Wait Makes Me Want to Holler. And it made me, in fact, want to holler. Douglas and Du Bois and uh, Cone, and I had to read all of this stuff, and I got so sick and tired of my own people, my own issues, frustrated with white blindness, frustrated with white guilt and my own dealing with it. I was like, I'm doing this. I'm going to the... I'm going to do cross-cultural ministry. I've experienced cross-cultural ministry. My mom's Italian, my dad's Hawaiian. I know how to do all this stuff. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to be about. This is what I'm, what, what I'm going to pursue. It shaped and formed my ideas, and I was going to pursue these things well early on in my uh, kind of growth in these areas. Well, let me say this. It wasn't just for them. In fact, it wasn't about them, whoever them is at all. It was about me and dealing with my guilt, my frustration, my own people, my own anger at my people. I spent half of this week just mad at being white. Trying to work it out. Trying to figure it out. And then, you know, you, you can dodge it when you have some Hawaiian ethnicity in you and some Italian ethnicity. You can go, them. And then you go, oh, no, me. And then, you, you, know, you know, how this kind of stuff can work, right? Because subdominant and dominant can change at any given point, depending on which, which mood you're in. Y'all, even at the beginning, the early beginnings, maybe three years before Christ Central started, it was mostly about burden. I talked to a friend of mine, Dr. Anthony Bradley, who's a was actually Pastor Howard's roommate. His PhD uh, was was in was in school, getting his PhD in African American theology, and um, I wanted to come plant the church with me. And I described the kind of things I want. I'm going to go work with black folk in the hood. I'm going to go do this stuff. I'm going to use my political privilege and my kind of ability and gravitas and going to an excellent school in the South. That I, I'm going to use those things to bring justice and mercy. And he let me talk and he talked, talk and talk. And I talked for a while and he said, he said, Giorgio. Well, first he affirmed good things about what I was saying. Love of mercy, bringing the kingdom, use your story as part of uh, uh, working towards good things. And then he stopped me and he said, Georgia, how come you have not mentioned anything but urban poor African Americans? He said, Georgia, there's a difference between a church plant and a church plantation. <laughs> there are two ways. To have white man's burden taken care of. Or there's two ways to oppress a people group. One is to just use your power to do it. The other one is to make them utterly reliant on you. There's probably 20 ways to do it, but those are the two that came to my head when I was writing it all this down. 
There's a difference between a church plant and a church plantation. You need to go spend your time hanging out with lots of more middle-class African-Americans, or rural African-Americans, uh, folks that, are come, that have come over from the islands or come over from different places and all that stuff, so you get a full breadth of what African-America is. I've lived in the South most of my life. That was part of the experience. I knew military African-Americans, but that's kind of a different feel altogether. It's more of a military culture. It just is what it is. And um, So it was just amazing for me, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Now, here's the weird thing, is the burden is a real burden. It happens. There's a real problem in Act 6. Real things are going on. There really is racial conflict. That's what's happening. Happening. It's racial, cultural, and other things like that. What does it have to do with what's got economics going on inside of it? Because it's about distribution of wealth, food, right? It's got gender issues because it's the widows. It's got language issues because it's the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews and the Aramaic Hebrew-speaking Jews. It's all tied together. It's got power issues. It's got cultural identity issues. Look, the Hellenistic Jews means that they have lived most of their life outside of Jerusalem. That's who the Hellenistic Jews are. Now, they're Jews by birth, right? In one sense, maybe the best way to look at this is not black and white, uh, um, uh, but maybe black and black or white and white. It's the NASCAR crowd and the business suits. It's the uh, bougie blacks and the urban poor. It's more that. Or better way to look at it is that we're all Gentiles, y'all. We're not. We're on. The, we're not even in the story. <laughs> we're out there for things to happen later. We're trying to figure it out. Uh, uh, maybe it's. Uh, so here's what happened. The Hellenistic Jews want to come back to their land to die. The widows do. They want to come back to their spiritual and uh, cultural home. Now, they've been hanging out with all the Greeks. They're kind of sophisticated, maybe bougie. I don't know what the ones they are, but they've been, they've been hanging out. They come home, but they don't have the infrastructure that's set up for them there. They don't have uh, uh, family because most of their family's gone. So they're actually a pretty good burden to the local community. And so guess what happens? They get rejected. Anybody ever done that? Been rejected within your own race? Everybody ever heard about not being black enough? Or white enough? Or a wannabe? Or a a vanilla ice? Or an Oreo? Or a banana? Or whatever you got. Right? That's that's Asian. Yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Uh, Have you ever heard that? You ever heard those experiences? You ever felt that? You Tom? That's the question, right? We got our own versions of it too. Usually they don't have as nice of a, of a statement as, you know, something as easy as, as a vanilla or something like that. Been rejected by your own people? That's what's going on here. They want to go home. They want to live at home. They want to be able and experience this. It's got economic issues. This is, uh, there's a long history of the church working itself out in, in the synagogues and taking care of those things. But now this is a sect of the church that's growing rapidly. And so this is kind of like a, uh, the, the, the economic resources aren't there and they're, they're, there's, there's trouble. We have a distribution of funds issues. We don't know exactly what to do. But the problem is that you have this power and privilege and place and prestige that turns into pride. It's not pride like, uh, there's nothing in the text that indicates that it was hateful discrimination. I'm, there's nothing in the text that said it wasn't. I'm not trying to say it wasn't. I'm just saying there's nothing in the text that says it was hateful distri- discrimination. And that's perfect with me. Because these kinds of isms and ists don't have to have intent behind them. Overlooked is overlooked. 
Subdominant is subdominant. Dominant tends to dominate. It doesn't really matter if it was willful or not. It may be a good old, good old Hebrew network where you know your people and they know it and it's just working out like that. It's not working well for everybody, but it's working well for some and it didn't, it was totally unintentional. I don't know. The bottom line is it was neglectful. It turned into a pride of not seeing, i.e. invisible man. Power and privilege and place can lead to pride and the response of the apostles is brilliant. They basically do this at first. They, this is the radical thought here, listen. They listen. They didn't retort. They didn't explain themselves. They listened. They heard the complaint. They just listened. And you know these guys uh, that, that were the apostles had, had thought, um, uh, had, had had their Bibles in their hands. Their Old Testament Bible said, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive degrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fireless, fatherless, Isaiah 10. Or Proverbs 22, Do not exploit the poor because they are poor and do not crush the needy. Or their own Lord's words, it's become the leader of this, Jesus' words, it's become the leader of this sect. I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or... James, who was likely there in Jerusalem, James of Jerusalem and other places in the scripture, who's likely there, says this. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he had promised those who love him? But if you you have insulted the poor, isn't it the rich that you're exploiting you and you're insulting the poor? Listen, I don't. Yes. The first solution to all this kind of conversation, all this stuff, is to just listen. Listen and listen and listen. Miroslav Vav, one great uh, theologian, says this. There's another sense in, uh, well, the initial suspicion against the perspective of the powerful is necessary, he writes. Not because the powerless are innocent, hear that. Not because the powerless are innocent, but because the powerful have the means to impose their perspective by argument and propaganda and support the imposition both with the attractiveness of their glory and with the might of their weaponry. In part, their power lies in the ability to give plausibility to the ideologies and justification of their power. The Jewish prophets he ends up with, and indeed the whole of scripture are biased toward the powerless. Not because they're innocent. If justice is what we're after, then we will interpret the powerful rhetoric of the smooth-tongued and strain our ear. We'll interpret the, uh, interrupt the powerful rhetoric of the smooth tongue and strain our ear to hear the feeble and crackling voices of those who cannot speak, Proverbs. The stammering of the needy are the eloquent testimony to their violated rights. The spellbinding oratory of the powerful may well bespeak of their bad conscience. It is above all the powerful who need to practice Listening. Listening. Y'all need to, we need to hear the steady diet of revolutionary speech. Cone and James and Cornell West and others. You don't have to agree with everything, but you need to listen and listen with humility. And you go, well, give me some reasonable folks. Folks. 
prophets aren't reasonable. Give me the ones that I can kind of hear more easily. Y'all, the whole point of crying out like that is a crying out that you're not going to understand if you're in a place in the dominant culture at the time. You're not going to get it. Listen and lean into it and hear. No prophet is loved in his own land and no prophet is reasonable to their context. You know what my other part about this that I love so much? Is that the Hellenistic Jews, the word there that's used for complained against is actually the word, uh, let me see what it says in Greek, uh, gongismos. Gongismos, that's onomatopoeic, right? That's, a, that's murmuring. Doesn't, isn't murmuring onomatopoeic? It kind of sounds like what it is. That's what gongismos is. Gongismos is the word that's translated from uh, in the uh, in the Old Testament into the Greek Old Testament. It's translated as the murmuring that God that, that God's people do against God. This passage is saying at least has an interpretive option where the Hellenists didn't come in with a very nice, well put together argument. It doesn't say that. It says they gongismos. Now. I don't know if it felt like a sit-in, a rally, a march. I don't know what it felt like. I don't know what it is. But I guarantee you it was gongismos. It didn't exactly fit. And so they were, so the apostles rightly sat back and said, we need to listen. We need to discipline ourselves to put our ear towards this and listen and hear. When you're in a dominant situation, and all of us at times are in dominant situations, you who call upon the name of Christ, you here at Christ Central Church, and there are times when every single one of us is in a dominant situation in this church. I need you to listen to one another. The scripture teaches us to not speak, but to listen, to talk about it, to hear each other, to ask further questions. Even if it's not completely theologically accurate or, uh, or relationally easy or emotionally balanced from your perspective, you must listen. Friends, I'm talking to family here. If you're a visitor, I'm sorry. We're going, we're going family real quick. This is an awkward place, Christ Central. There are awkward moments all the time with respect to race and culture and uh, just as much about where you're from, whether you're from the south or the north or, you know, as, as well as uh, whether you're black or white or Hispanic or whatever or Hawaiian. This is an awkward place. And we need to lean into that awkwardness and have conversations with each other and listen to each other. That's the only way that will break down the awkwardness. And with that awkwardness often comes all the frustration and anger and the church splits that are had to happen. But remember, the apostles didn't just listen. They reacted. They responded with humility. They gathered everybody together. They didn't sweep things under the rug. They didn't avoid their own repentance. They didn't force unity with some kumbaya song. You know, the Hellenistic and Hebraic, we are the world. Light a unity candle and go home. They didn't do a pulpit swap. They all got in the room and they dealt with it. They took immediate corrective action, owning what was true and taking responsibility for their sin of omission. 
That's what the apostles did. They had real Hebraic apostolic guilt. And they confessed it and said, we have been neglectful. And then they came with the weakness tip by saying, and we can't do it. It is our responsibility to take care of these things that Lord's called us to and this other thing. And this thing is so overwhelming. We can't do this. It is our neglect. It is our problem. We did it. It's our fault. We should, we're responsible for it. But we cannot do this. They came with weakness. The powerful came with weakness and said, you're right and we can't do it. Will you please help? And the we that will you please help included both the Hebraists and the Hellenists, the whole group that was there. And they said they treated them like adults and said, y'all figure this thing out. Y'all need to figure this thing out. And here's what happens is there's the flip, the craziest flip in all redemptive history to this far. Every single one of the seven chosen was a Hellenist. They're all Greek names. One of them isn't even a Hebrew. He's a convert. Nicholas from Antioch. He's, he had his own table for a long time. And now he becomes a deacon or a diacon, a one who serves at table. Now, don't, don't, don't think that this is like upper and lower kinds of stuff that's going on here. Not at all. Remember, it's all brought to the point where that was the, uh, the responsibility of the apostles. No, no, this is just a portion of it that they do. The term deacon or diaconos is a term that means serve or minister or lots of things. The same term that's used to serve at table is the same term diaconos, which is the same term in verse four that is used to quote minister the gospel. That's diaconos the gospel. So it's not like this high-low kind of thing that's going on. Not at all. They're ministering together, both being ministers. But they are clearly called to do something. They don't minimize it. Oh my goodness, if you've ever been as a subdominant person coming to a dominant place and you're talk, trying to explain to them in love to somebody and then they come and they minimize it and say, well, it's not really like that. Or they flip it via self-response. Oh, it really hurts me that you would think that about me. Y'all know this. You've experienced this. This could just be in parental relationships where dominant and subdominant. This is this happens all the time. Or you flip it via manner. That wasn't a really great way to say that. Could you speak in a little bit more biblical ease so I can hear you? Or my personal horrific favorite, sir, calm down. Calm down, sir. Well, I am calm. I am calm. No, 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 sir, calm down. Let me just not make it the authorities, please. No, calm down, sir. I'm calm. I'm trying to talk to you about this. I'm absolutely... You're making me less calm by telling me to calm down. Italians and black folks get in trouble with that one all the time. Remember, I'm Italian. I can say that. Um, They react. They respond. They deal. They take swift action, but they do so in weakness. They say we can't do it. They say... We're not able to do it. We're saying that their actions was a real problem that we messed up and we need someone else to help us. And then they bring it to the group and uh, and the group says, we can't do it either. Why don't y'all do it, Hellenists? That doesn't happen. You understand this, don't you? That the dominant culture gives it to another subdominant culture that gives it to the sub-subdominant culture that says, would you lead this for us? You know what that means? That means they're relying on the Hellenists to not take revenge. To take care of their mama, the widow. Who wants to give that kind of power up? But that's what goes on. They listen, they act, and they act with this kind of ensuring dignity and honor. There's beautiful things here. When they give up this power, they give up real power, real authority, real uh, uh, uh 
they don't get to run it. They're not running it. I'm not saying the apostles didn't like oversee it and see if there was a good resolution to the problem, but they're not running it. It's a supernatural resolution that occurs when they come in weakness and brokenness and listen. They gathered all the disciples together and it says the first thing that they said to them was brothers, which is a term that we need to open and widen up. It's not gender specific. It's like Italian, ragazzi, something like that where it means everybody, y'all, all right? But it is familial. Gathered everybody together. No side room chats. No, how do we deal with the, the Hellenistic problem, y'all? No, uh, no, let's get one or two of the Hellenists and get them kind of on our side and then we'll make it, you know, put, kind of, you know, make sure we have a spokesman, a Hellenist spokesman for us when we still implement our plan. No, no, no. They gathered everybody together. There's no side room chats. And the first thing they say to them is brothers, regazzi, family. We need to work this out. Which gives us the source of how we can work this out at Christ Central. Family first. We are part of the new humanity. And we have a brother. An older brother. We are not older brothers to each other. Remember, it's family, brothers, equal family. Not mom and dad. No patriarchy in the house. Right? The subdominant isn't the children. The dominant's the adults. Not even older brother, not. We got one older brother, and all of us are regular kin, you know, little kids. And we're working it out together. Almost messed up. Brothers. And that's our identity. Ragazzi. All Hellenists, y'all. Giving away real power. Let me tell you. Real authority, real power. If you're in a dominant cultural situation, and remember, I want you to think about where everyone can be in a dominant cultural situation. But when you're in a dominant cultural situation, when you give up real power and real authority, you will not know how to live like that. It will be very difficult for you. It will be very difficult because that's the water you swim in. And now you just put something else in the water and change it up. It is very, very difficult. And you will be smart enough to say, no, we just do things differently. But you're only saying we just do things differently. What you really mean is I can do it better. And you really believe that. And that's okay. Go ahead and admit it. You're probably wrong, but go ahead and admit it. But don't lie and say we just do things differently. And deep down inside think they're doing it wrong. We know better than to think white makes right. Right makes right. It just so happens that right corresponds to structures of white imperialism. That our values for white are right happen to be very white. Listen, y'all, this is not something we do on purpose. That is, I'm not excusing. It's just what we do. And when I'm saying we here, I mean all of us, not just white folk. Your cultural particulars become universal norms. Does that make sense? The cultural particulars, the little things about your culture, become universal norms. White people can't figure out why there's uh, Latin music awards. Why don't y'all do the Grammys? 
Because those are the white music awards. They're not the white music awards. Those are the regular music awards. That's just vanilla. It's regular. If you're good enough, you can play. No, no, no. You, we don't even understand that it goes back three steps. Right? It's, in some ways, it's not our fault. In some ways, it's completely our fault. I'm not trying to get the blame there. I'm just trying to open it up to have the discussion. Listen, there was a very wonderful man, a guy respected in really significant ways, who's a pastor of a large church in town who's, who was trying to describe something about relativism and he was trying to help here and he was just said, look, it's like trying to say that rap music is music. Rap music isn't music. Look, if you look in the encyclopedia, music has to have rhythm, melody, and harmony. I know that was encyclopedia. He just went to his sources. It's a blindness. It's a horrible blindness. It's cost effect. It's costly. And it affects in major and significant ways. But it's blindness. And that's why we need to give up powers and give up responsibilities so that we can hear and listen and have the conversations and work it out. Now you should know that... You're gonna, I don't even know if I should say this. When we make major decisions, there are, there are, uh, we have six elders. Two pastors, one black, one white. We have four, uh, uh, elders, uh, one black, three white. When we talk, the dominant party, when it comes to, say, the dominant issues it seems to come to about finances and things like that, everything goes to the white business guys, frankly. I'll just tell you that right now. Me too. I, I don't want it. Goes to the white business guys. We talk about race. Two people hold all the weight in that room. And they should. Because we can walk around not thinking about race. Y'all got to walk around thinking about race all the time. Y'all have been better students. We should listen. Now, we've come all the way through all that that we can actually feel open to talk about it all on both sides and really open it because we're family now. Our identity isn't on our blackness or our whiteness first. That's not to be colorblind. Y'all know I get on that one. Colorblind is pagan, right? But it does mean that our first identity marker is the new humanity with our older brother Jesus. Our first identity marker. Those second identity markers matter. Every tongue and tribe and nation will praise the Lord. And you will see them as tongue, tribe, and nation. But they will all be praising as family the Lord. Together. And what are they marked by? White robes. Don't go there. White robes. And a Judeo and a, and a Hebraic understanding is just clean. Dipped. Their white robes dipped in the blood of the lamb. The image is supposed to mess with you color-wise. It's supposed to mess with you. Our formal, foremost reality of identity is that we're his. Look, y'all. It's not white man's burden. It's not bougie black man's burden. It's not even man's burden. It's a Christian burden. And a burden that Paul says is a light and momentary affliction. Because he knows that there's one who's carried the burden for him. And for all this new humanity. That's where the burden lies. On his shoulders at the cross. 
We need third-party intervention in all our interactions. When black and white or whoever, dominant, subdominant, anyway, get together, you need a third-party intervention. You need to trust and collapse upon Jesus to be there and actually form his new humanity, even between three people in a room. We need him desperately to make us more and more what he's already made us, which is brothers and sisters in the Lord. Priest, a holy priesthood. And what's the result? It's after this. Two things happen. One, well, three things. One, the people are pleased, the scripture says. They please the whole group. Two, shalom, peace. You don't hear about this issue again in Jerusalem. In fact, they rework out all their other issues tied around these kind of things from here on out. Three, huge growth in the church. Even priests from other places come to know him. We thought we had a growth problem early. The unity of God's people will explode in the witness that Jesus has risen from the dead and he's brought a new humanity together. John 17 says, Be united so they they may know the love of God in Christ Jesus. Be united so that we can be a witness, a living epistle. Don't blow it off. Don't colorblind it. Work it out. And our primary identity as children of God and brothers and sisters of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the burden is too great to bear. Help us. Free us. Forgive us. We thank you that in Christ Jesus you do. That oppressor and oppressed. That those who have kept the fast and those who have not. That those who are in and, and those who are out. Those who are near and those who are far off come to you. We thank you that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile. Or Scythian or barbarian or man or woman. Or freed or slave but in Christ that we are united and all equal in you. Lord, help us. Help us embody this reality. Help us embody this reality for you and for our good and for the expansion of your kingdom. We ask in your name. Amen.